but uh, but I'm glad to be back and to know that uh, he uh, finished up the the kind of non-narrative image um, uh, examination and uh, y'all talked about that hopefully that was uh, cool does anybody have any questions or you just thought at the end of those two classes that you had something that was you really wanted to know that nobody that he didn't answer for you or that because I'll be glad to make up an answer this is not something that this is something that my wife and I and others have talked since the two classes yeah. and and I give all credit to my wife on this one but she she noticed how and I think it's in the book of John how Jesus says I am I am in all these statements and all these statements revert back to all the art that we were talking about the vine mm-hmm. the good shepherd like Almost to say that he is taking much like how we just get how Paul did with the unnamed God. Mm. Jesus is also taking that and just how that helps but can also create some dissonance mm. in your faith of like what we read in the Bible we see as like this was brand new and the first person to ever written that word of I am the vine, you know, is that and now we're seeing that that could have been taken from someone. Right. Yeah, in the same way, um, and of course, if you know much about uh, the the history of uh, messiahs in the in the first and second century, even after Jesus, you know the the claims of uh, you know uh, messianic lines, you know um, that that's not a single that's not just a single occurrence between uh, the Old Testament I am and the Jesus. Uh, for example, in the you know the raising of Lazarus when he told um, uh, Mary or Martha, I forget which one he told, or they may have been both been present, but when he said, "I am the resurrection," for you biblical scholars or people who have actually had Bible, went to Bible school, uh, but yeah, there it's not a single occurrence, and it also it. Along those same lines, the idea of um, you know the fish motifs being so popular in pagan culture, uh, so that you start thinking, or, or the Good Shepherd, as Dixie uh, we we talked about. Um, uh, was it Dixie that you brought up the Good Shepherd? Somebody was talking about how. Oh no, it was Mary Collins. Yeah, he said, you know, thinking, well, how how can the the depiction in the catacombs of the good shepherd not be Jesus. He said he was the good shepherd, you know, uh, not realizing that that had had a you know a pagan origin for many many years before that. And then you start thinking, well, maybe that's why Jesus used the illustration of the good. Why he, he called himself the good shepherd, even in the gospel, uh, to co-opt the the pagan representation of that uh, thing. And you start thinking about maybe Jesus used some of these illustrations and parables, co-opting those. Uh, previously, you know, pagan assigned uh, well, maybe, elements. Maybe because they were good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, uh, it just changes the way you read the Bible, and sometimes, like, you know, maybe the, the origin of some of these things uh, didn't start with, with Jesus. In fact, it was Jesus using, um, you know, those cultural elements that already existed and putting them into the context of his ministry. 
it, it helps. That, that's why we're studying this. It helps to understand more the context uh, and widens. Uh, it, it widens our kind of ability to think about what those what those teachings meant. Uh, just some quick, just a couple of quick announcements, and then we'll we'll jump right in. This is. Uh, this Wednesday, July 11th, we will have our annual hymn sing and ice cream exclamation mark. Bring your best homemade ice cream to the pavilion before hymn sing at 7 p.m. The judges, a panel of judges that have been brought in at great expense, uh, will determine uh, who has earned the coveted golden scoop exclamation mark. After the hymn sing, join us at the pavilion to enjoy the ice cream fellowship. So the caveat is that you have to sing, and then afterwards, um, I mean, you get to sing, and then you get to enjoy the ice cream. Uh, so, and then uh, next Wednesday, uh, or the following Wednesday, July 18th, there will be an orphan foster support and advocacy event from 6 to 7.30 at, in the gathering room. This is an in, informal gathering for anyone interested in the launch of a support and advocacy network for those involved in adoption, foster care, or orphan care of any kind. Free food, free child care provided, but you must register uh, in advance online at OC Registrations. You can do that, I think, through your app. Is that right? Or online. Um, family prayer concerns for this week. Uh, Logan and Leslie had um, had a daughter this week, Annie James Key, who arrived June 29th, and I think they're all doing well, from what I understand. Uh, and then is this right, Eric Glenave, Glenave Curtis, grandmother of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Milam, passed away June 30th in Searcy, uh, Arkansas. Any other prayer concerns to add this morning? Well, blessing. Okay. Boys in the Thailand cave are on their way out. They they are. I heard this morning that they had had three or four were already out. Looks like that. Hopefully, we'll have a happy ending. It's terrifying to watch that happen this week. Thankful for that. Anything else? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day, and thank you for every day, every moment of life, uh, every breath that we take, Lord, we are thankful and grateful for, uh, not only just that it exists and that you have provided it, but that it creates for us the possibility of uh, being ambassadors for your love, for all of creation. God, we ask for uh, ever more creative ways that we can do that, Lord, that you would tap our hearts and minds and give us the creativity, give us the leading, the calling, uh, and the opportunity to reflect the love that you have for all of us and all of your creation to those who are around us and those who are within our circle of knowledge and influence. I would just ask that you grow our faith uh, even in our doubt, Lord, even when we find ourselves um, in dark nights of our souls, uh, God, we know that you are also there and that you, we can find you there even in the darkness, Lord, because you are the Lord of light and darkness and all things, God. And we ask that you would grow our faith 
uh, even as we study um, our brothers and sisters and their material remains, Lord, uh, from <coughs> the very uh, beginning of our movement, Lord, and the wonderful celebration of life uh, and resurrection that began uh, on the day the tomb was found empty. God, just ask that you be with those who are hurting this morning. We're so thankful, Lord, that uh, the recovery uh, of the, the boys in Thailand, Lord, is underway. And we pray that you continue to uh, be present uh, in that rescue. Uh, Lord, you are the God of rescue. And uh, we ask uh, and are thankful for your hand in all things. Lord, be with those who are hurting. Be with those who are sick. And Lord, uh, bless this congregation of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we uh, we moved past kind of the non-narrative images that are found in the first uh, couple hundred years of Christian art. Again, things change radically once we reach the Edict of Milan uh, at 313 uh, for many reasons. We'll talk about some of those reasons at the end of the class, but... Um, for, for the scant evidence and the scant art that we have before that, um, those two classifications of uh, non-narrative Im images that are symbolic, and you guys have covered those last week, fish, the anchors, all those things. Uh, we move in now to a group of art that consists of things that are more familiar to us, that are based on uh, Bible stories and Bible characters both in a narrative sense and in a symbolic sense, uh, and kind of how those kind of exist in the same context, uh, found mostly in catacombs. Uh, and we'll talk about kind of the occurrence of those, what those things meant. But I wanted to play a video. It's one of, one of my all-time favorites about uh, getting Bible stories wrong. I love this guy. If y'all can... But I come from a time when we used to test folks who called themselves priests. We had trial sermons. Because how many know somebody can get mad at this joke and this is the truth? Uh, you can tell they call because they give up the little secrets, right? Not knowing what people go in what Bible stories. <laughs> Sunday school is a beautiful thing, y'all. And they sound like a preacher, and so people don't talk they can preach. And they do good until they get specific. <laughs> Can I show you a trial sermon I went to with the brother did? True story. He just got up there and he had a good singing voice and he had the crowd worked up. He said, mm, yeah. <laughs> Talk back to me, y'all. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mary and Shadrach and Ahab was in the Bible. 
Churches uh, as a teenager. Oh my! Uh, most I went to ninety percent black school, so uh, I love. <laughs> I get the cadence, man. That's where I got my musical stuff. Yeah, mixing up Bible stories happened in the first, second century as well. But um, anyway, we'll we'll start uh, here. Narrative images with biblical iconography. In early Christian art, so obviously the tech. When we see some of the images we see in the catacombs uh, of characters, we recognize the textual sources behind those things are usually obvious. I mean, we know who the characters are. We know uh, the Bible stories that go along with them, as did those who who painted them and who are, are buried there. Uh, but the reasons behind their use uh, and their particular selection are not always obvious. Uh, the popularity of certain biblical stories can um, obviously denote the prominent place those stories play in daily life. In other words, the frequency of what uh, of certain images that appear over and over again in um, funeral context can tell us about how important those things were. It's an obvious uh, cor- correlation between those two, but need to point it out anyway. So, <coughs> by far, this is uh, you may or may not have already realized this, but by far the most frequently occurring uh, biblical figure sets are Old Testament subjects. Um, we'll talk about in the reason um, in, in the, at the when we've gone through them um, some speculation and theories about why that is, uh, but it, um, it it's very true. Um, the, the other thing that is interesting is that the, the depictions that we find most often sometimes don't correlate to what we would think are, is important, which again says more about our theology than it does um, uh, you know, the second, third, fourth century uh, Christian theology. Uh, for example, we find uh, there is not a single uh, depiction of Moses parting the Red Sea. Uh, pre-Constantine anywhere but there are lots and lots of depictions uh, or lots and lots relative to to the entire corpus lots of depictions of uh, Moses striking uh, the rock in the wilderness Um, uh, uh, what's another example of that Uh, sorry oh yeah so there uh, there's no uh, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, or David found anywhere in this set of images, or for that matter, any major prophets. Um, yeah, some of the stuff we think would be really important, and and in the few New Testament or uh, are, are, uh, what we term New Testament story images that uh, show up, which are very few, uh, the thing the things that show up aren't. 
necessarily what we would think are important. In other words, uh, for example, uh, you know, the very few depictions of Jesus before 313 that show up in catacombs are, are almost overwhelmingly the baptism of Jesus. Um, Jesus, the, the loaves and the fishes, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, there's one more I can't uh, remember. I probably have noted it here. But for the most part, what we find uh, for the first 200 years of Christian art and catacombs are o Old Testament scenes and figures. And here they are, top ten, like Casey Case and Music. <laughs> Number four. You know. <laughs> Jonah, uh, by far, far and away, the most uh, depicted uh, uh, character in catacombs art. Uh, typically in these three-part cycle of images. Uh, they usually come in what we call a triptych um, uh, form, uh, starting with when he's cast overboard and being swallowed by the sea creature, which looks hideous. It doesn't look like a passive fish in most early Christian <laughs> depictions. It is a dragon, you know, and you'll see when we look at these images. Uh, and then the second of the triptych, um, disgorged by the sea monster, spit out, vomited, and then thirdly, at rest on dry land under the gourd vine. There's almost a hundred images of Jonah uh, that we know about that are uh, still extant in catacombs context, pre-Constantine. Uh, here they go. Uh, this is what it looks like. I think we may have looked at, because this is Priscilla, we may have looked at this image but this is him, uh, Jonah, being tossed aside, tossed overboard. I mean, looks like an angry sea. Uh, ship is so angry that the ship is floating <laughs> off, of, off of the sea. He got outvoted to the water. He did, yeah. Right, right, which is something we'll talk about, the nonspecific. Here's another version of that. This is Arsonis. Like yeah. The dog. yeah, right. It's very, uh, very angry-looking dragon type. Uh, and then here he is being thrown up. It's a little bit like Lost Loch Ness monster. Uh, and then there's very similar again. Uh, don't know any fish that looks like that. <laughs> that is definitely a, a dragon. And here he is reclining under the gourd vine. Um, and then once again, another version of that. Wearing a loincloth or what's the I don't think we should talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is amazing that the kind of the archetype for this type, like if you look at the character itself, uh, looks so similar to Egyptian panel paintings, which is again why there's a whole school of thought that uh, all of this catacombs art was informed by early Egyptian uh, panel painting and that actually some of the panel paintings we find in Egypt uh, that we've traditionally assigned to kind of Egyptian um, uh, gods and mythology are actually early Christian instances. Again, I'm still researching. I'm not completely convinced of that. A lot of that research has gone on at the, at the Getty out in LA. They make a good argument and have published a really good work on it, but um, uh, some of it is a, 
uh, as a stretch. I, you know, is it Zeus or is it Jesus? I'm just not sure. You know, uh, but yeah, this. Uh, Remember these two images right here, because when we talk about kind of some reasons behind why Old Testament figures are so popular uh, in a minute, remember these images. Uh, okay, so distant, uh, distant second, uh, meaning there are a dozen or fewer. So we really drop down in terms of repeating cut of, uh, figures uh, after Jonah. Uh, and that's significant to remember. You know, what is the big deal with Jonah? Uh, distant second is Noah in the ark, on the ark. And uh, I do mean on the ark. <laughs> he, that's very simple, yeah. There's Noah. Uh, it's almost like a jack-in-the-box Noah. Like, uh, or a Christmas surprise Noah. Remember that Christmas we got Noah for Christmas? Yeah. And then you have, of course, the, the dove that looks more like a parrot, you know. I could really I could really have been successful as a third century artist. I can yeah. uh, there it is very again, we talked about very that part part of the you know uh, part of the reason we understand that these aren't uh, exclusively narrative images is because of the simplicity of the art. The, the, the people that were painting these images were capable of much more nuanced uh, and narrative storytelling art. And you can, you can uh, see that by, the, by their parallel work that was going on in and around Rome at the time. You know, some brilliant uh, painting going on that was more obviously narrative because of the level of detail that goes on. And you, you get the same thing, Noah in the box with a dove that looks like a parrot that's dropping the, um, uh, the branch there. Uh, yes, it, it, it is. Uh, there's no Mrs. Noah. There are no animals, right? Uh, none of the things that we typically associate with the little, especially the later narrative version of, of these characters and these stories. Uh, which we'll talk about again, the importance of that in a minute. Uh, then after that, it really drops off, uh, meaning you got three or four, um, three or four instances, or ten or fewer, uh, starting with with the most often seen, the three youths in the fiery furnace, meaning Mary. Uh, <laughs> it's Mary. Ahak. I love Ahak. He's a real hero among the Old Testament. <laughs> That's brilliant. Fiery furnace, you got Moses again striking the rock. Uh, Abraham offering Isaac. Although, again, as we saw, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had an image. Well, that image that. Um, sorry. Adam and Eve, Daniel and Lion's Den. Uh, here's uh, Moses striking uh, the rock. Uh, oh yeah, this is an Abraham and Isaac depiction, which is kind of the more traditional Caravaggio uh, <coughs> version, where Isaac looks not that happy about the situation. Uh, and then this image, is, which is really interesting, as you see, uh, uh, that's Isaac, you know, ha have uh, with the bundles uh, in order to, yeah. 
right for the altar really interesting uh, the placement in the plane as well it's really interesting but um, I don't I don't know if this was in there were a fuller fuller image and it was in disrepair and so it only looks like it was composed that way but it's an interesting um, and you get you also see in this image more of kind of the uh, expressive work that was happening in and around Rome um, I mean just the three-quarter pose of the eye kind of with the directional there's expression there that this can be interpreted versus kind of more the stick figure uh, symbolic not narrative there's Adam and Eve which we recognize by their shame uh, and there's Daniel in the lion's den and there's our fiery furnace <coughs> there's also this image find uh, or this depiction shows up and more in uh, sarcophagus uh, a carved marble as well uh, and and this this is one of the depictions that also carries through uh, post Constantine as well uh, we, we keep finding this uh, the fiery furnace uh, depiction um, several possible theories behind why that is um, the major one being that it's closely tied to the martyrs uh, this depiction kind of is uh, co-opted outside of its story it kind of transcends the original story and becomes kind of a symbolic uh, depiction for both um, venerating the martyr uh, martyrs and then for eventually honoring them and remembering them as you get uh, you know past kind of the major persecutions in the church uh, post Constantine it's odd what they're wearing it's like um, yeah it, it's Babylonian yeah well, well is what it looks like it, it actually is a Persian you see their hats and they're kind of uh, Pillsbury Doughboy um uh, <laughs> It's very different than most of the Roman art because they are depicted as as Babylonia, as Persian. Uh, that's why, again, we... I mean, you're not going to miss what story this comes from, but the accuracy uh, of the narrative is that they're, you know, they're dressed in kind of Persian uh, garb. Not sure what the thing up there is. If it's, anybody got it? That's a bald eagle. From America. <laughs> yeah. I haven't actually read this Bible story, but here it's wonderful. Alright, so let's talk about some theories behind uh, hey, when does this class get out? Sorry. Ten forty five, right? Ten forty five. some kind of reasons or theories behind the reasons of why Old Testament images are so popular here. The first I kind of discount most scholars do as well because uh, there, there's an idea that there was a synchronous or parallel Jewish iconography um, going on uh, at the same time that kind of informed or, or moved into early Christian art. In other words, this was kind of the uh, program uh, Iconic iconography program 
that existed in Jewish culture, and so it just kind of moved over and translated into early Christian culture. There's very little evidence for that. Again, there's very little evidence for any Jewish uh, consistent and substantial uh, Jewish iconography other than menorahs and things that are, are very um, symbolic uh, just because of the uh, because of the Ten Commandments you know graven images there was, very, there was a prohibition and very uh, leery uh, you know Jewish culture was very non-artistic because of that those reasons uh, there is some that exist and Part, part of why this theory even exists is because of one synagogue named Dura uh, that had, had some period frescoes that kind of look like or follow the same uh, uh, program uh, as this early Christian art. But uh, there's some question about um, there's some question about the authenticity of it in terms of the dating. Uh, and then there's some other elements of that that just really make kind of a consistent uh, body of evidence that would make think oh Christians just this is what you know the Jews used so they just used these big biblical pictures uh, in their early art not a lot of evidence for that another kind of supposition is that uh, a lot of these figures kind of resemble Greco-Roman uh, pagan and mythological uh, programs of art and so it was easier a, a uh, it was easiest uh, like I mean Christians were kind of co-opting those pagan symbols and the artists themselves like uh, in other words uh, <coughs> remembering uh, this this figure here uh, it's very very similar to um, Zeus being given uh, rest. There's a mythological story that uh, in, in kind of Greco-Roman mythology uh, where this depiction is almost identical. And so the idea of this is what the artists know how to paint. So these are the story. We're like if I'm going to commission an artist to paint a catacomb, you know, uh, depiction can, can you get me close to something that looks like this and say, oh yeah, it looks like Jonah. You know, that there's there's that theory as well. Uh, I, again, I, I don't see enough, um, per personally, I don't see enough evidence of that obviously these all of these figures are influenced by Greco-Roman uh, artistic programs. Um, it's like, um, I'm trying to think of a modern parallel for that. Uh, well, if you look at Caravaggio, you know, painting or Rembrandt painting uh, you know, the head of Christ or painting uh, Christian uh, narrative scenes, uh, you know, in the 16th century, uh, those depictions are going to look like the, the rest of the art that are pagan art. Everybody else is painting this stylistically. It's popular. Uh, it's going to look like the figures, the modeling, the draftsmanship, the palette, all of those things are going to look like all of the other contemporary art for the most part. Either, you know, that or you, you, you know, you go, you go rogue and you can't sell anything, you know. I mean, there's, there, obviously there's a, 
trajectory, you know, that, that exists within the wider culture. So you're going to have uh, all this Christian art kind of uh, follow in terms of how it looks. Um, it's going to be influenced heavily by the Greco-Roman. But other than that, I don't see that's why we have more Old Testament images. Uh, Zeus, yeah, Zeus, grand and blissful sleep, influenced. Uh, there are also theological reasons or suppositions about why we see so much Old Testament stories. Uh, the prevailing one is that uh, these Old Testament stories and figures were selected in particular uh, because they rec represented God's deliverance from danger, and especially in times of persecution and especially in the moment. Well, that makes sense on its face, uh, especially in light of persecution of early Christians. Um, uh, you know, uh, all of these stories, and and uh, obviously, they are understood as symbolic. We're not trying to inform. You know, this art is not trying to inform by use of narrative art. They're not trying to tell the story because you got a guy on a box with a dove. You're not telling much of that story. The, the viewers of that are assumed, it's assumed that they know the full narrative. So um, it is understood that the over, there's an overarching theme there that's symbolic with all this art, that it doesn't have a significantly narrative focus. Uh, so one feature of this uh, theory is that it presumes all the uh, themes have understood to have an overarching desire to be delivered from immediate danger. And this also accounts for the post-Edict of Milan reduction of these figures uh, and increase in overt, Im uh, overt images of Christ and the Apostles. In other words, the minute Christians stop being persecuted in mass, or which again is kind of a, a misunderstanding, um, then these figures start going away in Christian art. Uh, you see less and less of the occurrence of Jonah until you don't see any occurrence of Jonah after about 500. Um, and you see more and more images and depictions of Christ, the apostles, you know, the, the saints and the martyrs. Um, so the idea that these images were direct, direct uh, calls <coughs> upon God for deliverance of the danger of persecution uh, makes sense in that context, but it also assumes an empire-wide persecution, which is just not true. I mean, those of you who are biblical scholars or have studied persecutions, uh, there are some intense periods of Christian persecution before Constantine, but they are mild, uh, relatively brief, uh, other than uh, Diocletian, of course, which lasts, you know, ten, almost ten years. Um, it's intense, but a lot of times it's centralized as well. In other words, you will have intense uh, persecution under Nero in Rome, but in the provinces, people are living in peace. They're not persecuted at all. And, uh, and although a lot of this catacomb art is found in and around Rome, it's not all found there. Uh, and so uh, that brings up a question whether you know that may, whether that's completely. Uh, true. It also brings up the whole idea that it, it is elevating the worldly concern over next world focus. In other words, we're asking, you know, our primary focus in our art and um, is to is, is focusing on God delivering us from danger in the present moment, rather than some 
you know, next world or resurrection uh, situation. And I, I kind of question that. I, I don't think that the text leads us there. You know, the the uh, the letters of Paul aren't tip, are typically concerned with God saving me from danger now. In fact, they're they're quite detached from that. And I think uh, a lot of the uh, documentary history and textual history of the early church. Um, I mean, again, you wouldn't have had a cult of martyrs if everyone was concerned about uh, getting out of it, you know. Uh, and then this third feature, um, which we talked about a little bit, asserts that iconography transcends literal narrative function and becomes primarily symbolic. And that is supported by the exclusion of all these other elements, as I said. There's no on a box, there's no animals. Uh, everybody already knows that Noah is safe and delivered. So here's my take. So uh, is, is that kind of like in Sunday school when you were being taught with final graph, you didn't have all the stuff, you just had the, the story of, of the, and you were stuck on that and the, and the teacher just taught, because you already heard the story of Jig and yeah, time, right? Yes, so yes, right? and the VeggieTales version does leave out some, <laughs> yes. Although my final graph teacher pulled out all the stops and whistles. He had stuff everywhere. Yeah, that's, that's right. It was assumed among the community, especially among the Jewish converts, right? right? I mean, they know these stories back and front. They recite them in the day, you know. Uh, so here's my take before we go. Um, I think uh, these well-known narrative figures follow this <laughs> narrative figure symbolically shown in scenes of God's deliverance within the context of the catacombs than the funeral context, and juxtaposed to themes and non-narrative images pertaining to resurrection, as we've covered in the, in the previous few weeks, the, the orange figure, the peacocks that are everywhere, um, communicate a hope and declaration that God will do what he says he will do through raising Jesus from the dead, and that those who lie here, lay here, lie here, will rise again. In other words, uh, uh, and again, I love the triptych we looked at with the woman that's depicted in Priscilla of here she is being married, you know, on this side, here she is nursing her baby, and then the middle, she's in the orient um, position. Obviously, she has died, she's here, but this shows that she is not floating on the cloud. Uh, she is not disembodied, but in fact, she has been resurrected. And I think all of these symbols juxtaposed together, um, all of these Old Testament stories, almost uh, to the T, show that God keeps his promises. Here are the stories that we tell one another. And we tell them symbolically, you know, we don't have to know the details of the Noah story. A guy sitting on a box with a bird is enough. We know what that means. It means God does what he says he's going to do. The youth in the fiery furnace. God does what he says he's going to do, even if he doesn't, but he did. Uh, I think those symbolic Old Testament stories are reinforcements of this new way of looking at what God, God does what he says he's going to do. Look what he's done for Jesus. I think that is 
at least for me, my take on what these images mean, and especially. Um, and, right, are you saying that, and that's because of where these were found? You think that's yes, the, that funeral the content, context, yes. the funeral context? Right, because I mean, 90% of all of these images that we have before Constantine, the earliest Christian art we have are almost always found in this context, in, in a funeral context. And I think, uh, I think putting all of those pieces together, everything we've talked about in the, in the few weeks before about what these symbols, you know, previously pagan, maybe, maybe not, you know, all these symbols that talk about the peacock, you know, everlasting life, you know, uh, this, you know, the orange figure, all these things juxtaposed to these story images that say God keeps his promises. Uh, put together to me present uh, a strong and compelling case that that is the gist of this the, of this really early art. Next week we'll start with images of Jesus uh, and images of God uh, and we'll get into some post-Constantinian stuff but any questions or any comments the immediate context of the Ten Commandments was the Israelites were in a pagan culture that was full of iconography mm -hmm. of various sorts. And I just wondered if the purpose, the immediate purpose of the Ten Commandments is not so much to forbid iconography from all, from, for, for all time, mm -hmm. but to combat the specific iconography that the mm. people of Israel will be led into. Yeah. So it's okay for, for believers and other matters mm. to use iconography yeah. to tell the story. Yeah. And and I do think just as just as Jesus turned everything, <coughs> especially everything Moses said on its head with his ministry, I, I, again I feel like some of the stories that Jesus told were, were taking kind of cultural or even traditional Jewish iconography and turning it on its head uh, by using some of those you know some of those uh, narrative and non-narrative images in his ministry and uh, yes I, I, I think that makes sense we, we tell we use the spoken word the written word the printed word and the internet is the fourth great Eras of communication, but there are nonverbal ways of communicating right. without language. Right. Well, that's why we're studying this this whole set. Anything else? Do we see similar art in Islamic? I can't speak to that. Dwayne can. Dwayne. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I ask is that the top two, Jonah as well as the flood, both are similar, maybe not the mm -hmm. same story, but they both there is a Jonah figure in the Islamic yeah. Like and so I was just curious to know if if that could also help us understand in the mind of a Christian mm -hmm. as we look in the mind of a Yeah, that's an interesting uh, um, I mean I don't I wouldn't know. Play knows. I'm an art major, so like we study ancient art and the art like that. I mean the thing you have to remember is like just the different context of Islamic art because Roman persecution, but they always, I 
they never have to face it. 